Chapter Ten of the Return of Doctor Fu Manchu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elaine Tweddle. The Return of Doctor Fu Manchu by Sax Romer. Chapter Ten: The Climber Returns. In utter darkness, we groped our way through into the hallway of Slatton's house, having entered stealthily from the rear, for Smith had selected the study as a suitable base of operations we reached it without mishap and presently i found myself seated in the very chair which karamaneh had occupied my companion took up a post just within the widely opened door so we commenced our ghostly business in the house of the murdered man a house from which but a few hours since his body had been removed this was such a vigil as i had endured once before when with nayland smith and another i had waited for the coming of one of fu manchu's death agents of all the sounds which one by one now began to detach themselves from the silence there was a particular sound homely enough at another time which spoke to me more dreadfully than the rest it was the ticking of the clock upon the mantelpiece and i thought how this sound must have been familiar to abel slatton how it must have formed part and parcel of his life as it were and how it went on now tick 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 whilst he for whom it had ticked lay unheeding would never heed it more as i grew more accustomed to the gloom i found myself staring at his office chair once i found myself expecting abel slatton to enter the room and occupy it there was a little china buddha upon the bureau in one corner with a gilded cap upon its head and as some reflection of the moonlight sought out this little cap my thoughts grotesquely turned upon the murdered man's gold tooth Vague creakings from within the house, sounds as though of stealthy footsteps upon the stair, set my nerves tingling, but Nayland Smith gave no sign, and I knew that my imagination was magnifying these ordinary night sounds out of all proportion to their actual significance. Leaves rustled faintly outside the window at my back. I construed their sibilant whispers into the dreaded name, Fu Manchu, Fu Manchu, Fu Manchu so wore on the night and when the ticking clock hollowly boomed the hour of one i almost leaped out of my chair so highly strung were my nerves and so appallingly did the sudden clamour beat upon them smith like a man of stone showed no sign he was capable of so subduing his constitutionally high-strung temperament at times that temporarily he became immune from human dreads and on such occasions he would be icily cool amid universal panic but his object accomplished i have seen him in such a state of collapse that utter nervous exhaustion is the only term by which i can describe it tick 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 went the clock and with my heart still thumping noisily in my breast i began to count the tickings one two three four five and so on to a hundred and from one hundred to many hundreds then out from the confusion of minor noises a new arresting sound detached itself i ceased my counting no longer i noted the tick tick of the clock nor the vague creakings rustlings and whispers i saw smith shadowly raise his hand in warning in needless warning for i was almost holding my breath in an effort of acute listening from high up in the house this new sound came from above the topmost room it seemed up under the roof a regular squeaking oddly familiar yet elusive 
Upon it followed a very soft and muffled thud, then a metallic sound as of a rusty hinge in motion, then a new silence, pregnant with a thousand possibilities more eerie than any clamour. My mind was rapidly at work. Lighting the topmost landing of the house was a sort of glazed trap, evidently set in the floor of a loft-like place extending over the entire building. Somewhere in the red-tiled roof above there presumably existed a corresponding skylight or lantern. So I argued, and, ere I had come to any proper decision, another sound, more intimate, came to interrupt me. This time I could be in no doubt. Someone was lifting the trap above the stairhead, slowly, cautiously, and all but silently. Yet to my ears, attuned to trifling disturbances, the trap creaked and groaned noisily. Nayland Smith waved to me to take a stand on the other side of the opened door, behind it, in fact, where I should be concealed from the view of anyone descending the stair. I stood up and crossed the floor to my new post. A dull thud told of the trap fully raised and resting upon some supporting joist. A faint rustling of discarded garments, I told myself, spoke to my newly awakened acute perceptions of the visitor preparing to lower himself to the landing, followed a groan of woodwork submitted to sudden strain, and the unmistakable pad of bare feet upon the linoleum of the top corridor. I knew now that one of Dr. Fu Manchu's uncanny servants had gained the roof of the house by some means, had broken through the skylight, and had descended by means of the trap beneath on to the landing. In such a tensed-up state as I cannot describe, nor at this hour mentally reconstruct, I waited for the creaking of the stairs which should tell of the creature's descent. I was disappointed. Removed scarce a yard from me as he was, I could hear Nayland Smith's soft, staccato breathing, but my eyes were all for the darkened hallway, for the smudgy outline of the stair-rail, with the faint patterning in the background which alone indicated the wall. It was amid utter silence, unheralded by even so slight a sound as those which I had acquired the power of detecting, that I saw the continuity of the smudgy line of the stair-rail to be interrupted. A dark patch showed upon it, just within my line of sight, invisible to Smith, on the other side of the doorway, and some ten or twelve stairs up. No sound reached me, but the dark patch vanished and reappeared three feet lower down. Still I knew that this phantom approach must be unknown to my companion, and I knew that it was impossible for me to advise him of it unseen by the dreaded visitor. The third time the dark patch, the hand of one who, ghostly, silent, was creeping down into the hallway, vanished and reappeared on a level with my eyes. Then a vague shape became visible, no more than a blur upon the dim design of the wallpaper, and Nayland Smith got his first sight of the stranger. The clock on the mantelpiece boomed out the half-hour. At that, such was my state, I blush to relate, I uttered a faint cry. It ended all secrecy, that hysterical weakness of mine. It might have frustrated our hopes. That it did not do so was in no measure due to me, but in a sort of passionate whirl the ensuing events moved swiftly. Smith hesitated not one instant. With a panther-like leap he hurled himself into the hall. "'The lights, Petrie!' he cried. "'The lights! The switch is near the street door!' I clenched my fists in a swift effort to regain control of my treacherous nerves, and, bounding past Smith, and past the foot of the stair, I reached out my hand to the switch, the situation of which, fortunately, I knew. 
around i came in response to a shrill cry from behind me an inhuman cry less a cry than a shriek of some enraged animal with his left foot upon the first stair nayland smith stood his lean body bent perilously backward his arms rigidly thrust out and his sinewy fingers gripping the throat of an almost naked man a man whose brown body glistened unctuously whose shaven head was apish low whose bloodshot eyes were the eyes of a mad dog his teeth, upper and lower, were bared, they glistened, they gnashed, and a froth was on his lips. With both hands he clutched a heavy stick, and once, twice, he brought it down upon Nayland Smith's head. I leaped forward to my friend's aid, but as though the blows had been those of a feather, he stood like some figure of archaic statuary, not for an instant relaxed the death-grip which he had upon his adversary's throat. Thrusting my way up the stairs, I wrenched the stick from the hand of the dacquit, for in this glistening brown man I recognized one of that deadly brotherhood who hailed Dr. Fu Manchu as their lord and master. I cannot dwell upon the end of that encounter. I cannot hope to make acceptable to my readers an account of how Nayland Smith, glassy-eyed and with consciousness ebbing from him instant by instant stood there a realization of leighton's athlete his arms rigid as iron bars even after fu manchu's servant hung limply in that frightful grip in his last moments of consciousness with the blood from his wounded head trickling down into his eyes he pointed to the stick which i had torn from the grip of the dacquit and which i still held in my hand not aaron's rod petrie he gasped hoarsely the rod of moses slatten's stick even upon my anxiety for my friend amazement intruded but i began and turned to the rack in which slatten's favourite cane at that moment reposed had reposed at the time of his death yes there stood slatten's cane we had not moved it we had disturbed nothing in that stricken house there it stood, in company with an umbrella and a malacca. I glanced at the cane in my hand. Surely there could not be two such in the world. Smith collapsed on the floor at my feet. "'Examine the one in the rack, Petrie,' he whispered, almost inaudibly. "'But do not touch it. It may not be yet.' I propped him against the foot of the stairs and as the constable began knocking violently at the street door, crossed to the rack and lifted out the replica of the cane which I held in my hand. A faint cry from Smith, and as if it had been a leprous thing, I dropped the cane instantly. "'Merciful God!' I groaned, although in every other particular it corresponded with that which I held, which I had taken from the dacquit, which he had come to substitute for the cane now lying upon the floor. In one dreadful particular it differed. Up to the snake's head it was an accurate copy. But the head lived. Either from pain, fear, or starvation, the thing confined in the hollow tube of this awful duplicate was become torpid. Otherwise no power on earth could have saved me from the fate of Abel Slatton. For the creature was an Australian death-adder. End of chapter 10 Recording by Elaine Tweddle, Stirling, Ontario.